Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, which you can now find at cinematicmultiverse.com. I'm Joe Cunningham and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Seb Patrick and James Hunt. This week we will be skipping straight past the usual news segment, uh, because this is actually, for the first time ever I think, a pre-recorded podcast, and if my calculations are correct from this date in the past, then I'll currently be sat on a beach in Hawaii right now, which, I mean, as much as I love Batman Returns, guys... Sounds better than this, but hopefully you'll enjoy the podcast anyway. Um, so the check, the check, lost. the Disney check from Batman <laughs> Superman finally cleared. Then yes, yeah, all that money's come in, and James, that may have played a small part into it. No, we we are doing half of our Hawaii, uh, half of our honeymoon in Los Angeles, um, which is kind of me being able to go and satisfy all my movie. Uh, nerdery and also go to an NFL game um, and then uh, my fiance has really wanted to go to Hawaii for a long time so we're kind of doing a week in each of our favourite destinations Stop saying Hawaii <laughs> To be fair I, I quite like to go to Hawaii but it's because of forgetting Sarah Marshall rather than Lost. We're also doing a, a movie tour while we're there We could <laughs> be on it right now um, <laughs> But enough about my holiday Um <laughs> Let's get back to the podcast. Um, So instead of doing the news, we will be launching today straight into our discussion of Tim Burton's 1992 film, Batman Returns. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seven James to explain a comic book concept that as a movie fan, I just don't understand. And this week, I thought we'll stick with DC. Um, What I want to know, guys, is who are the birds of prey and what do they do? Um, okay, so the Birds of Prey are a team of female superhero slash vigilante operatives in Gotham City. Um, I believe they were created, they're most readily associated with a writer called Gail Simone, um, but I think they were originally created by Chuck Dixon, um, who wrote a lot of, he wrote some Batman stuff in the kind of mid to late 90s, but is more readily associated with like wider Bat family stuff. Like he wrote Robin for the Tim Drake Robin for a very long time. Um, and I don't know when the when Birds of Prey first appeared. Um, a very quick Googling is telling me 1996. Um, 
and they it's I think the original team lineup was um Oracle, which um was Barbara Gordon, um who became Oracle, I think, in the pages of Suicide Squad, actually, where after after killing Joke, it was in John Ostrander's Suicide Squad that um she got set up as Oracle. Right. Um so it's Oracle, uh Black Canary. Um, in fact, I think initially it was just Oracle and Black Canary um, as a duo, and then I think they added Huntress. Um, Huntress, yeah, Huntress was definitely you, in it. Yeah, but I don't think she was there right at the very yeah. beginning. Um, She's a good character you, for understanding. That'll be a quick explanation. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, Joe, if you um, if you if you're unfamiliar with Huntress, um, we could we could spend a whole podcast on on her background. She's She's got one of the most complicated backgrounds um, okay, in the comics right. because I mean, I'm going to bank that. I'm going to bank that. She's going to ask you to explain that on a future podcast. <laughs> yeah, she's a female bat vigilante, but um, there have been different versions from different Earths. Some of whom are well. The original Huntress was basically the daughter of Earth Two Batman. <laughs> right. Okay. Short I've short. seen her in Arrow, but I would. Oh, she been in Arrow. Oh, okay. She I probably. Um, Bertinelli is that her name? Helena Bertinelli. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, but again, I think she's had different names over um, various periods of time. Um, so what? So with the Birds of Prey is the deal just basically it's the female characters, or is there anything defining about them beyond that? Um, I mean, they're all sort of you know they tend to be loosely um bird or or winged animal themed um but they haven't i they have had male characters um because hawk and dove joined and um at the time when um when dove was female but hawk was was still male because hawk and dove were originally two guys um and then it was and then in later dc stuff it was um a guy and a girl um right. so hawk has been a member of them so you know he didn't didn't have the female criteria but had the bird themed criteria so um that was enough for him to be let in and they've had you know there are characters like um nightwing obviously has shown up frequently given his um connection to both barbara gordon and um huntress um i think wildcat has been in it a fair bit as well um so a cat amongst all those birds <laughs> cat woman she must maybe, have shown up at some point i'm pretty sure yeah she may even have been an out and out member um at some point like they it, if it's generally tended to be characters that have some kind of connection to gotham um but it you know it does expand kind of into the wider dcu but i mean i've not read too many of the comics so i don't actually know if it's if it's like an explicit criteria within the book of this is an all-female team or if it's just these are a group of characters who know each other and choose to be a team do you know what i mean it's sort of it's i i don't believe it's it it's a deliberate like membership criterion and are they Uh, are they flat out heroic it's just like any other kind of yeah they're just yeah i mean the the tone is more sort of it's slightly kind of espionagey um and sort of underground vigilante kind of stuff um but yeah there's you know i mean the extent of the moral ambiguity would be for example you know having catwoman on the team or that kind of thing so it's you know and 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 huntress is kind of she's a vigilante but she's a She's a vigilante who Batman doesn't really like very much because he thinks she goes a bit far in beating the crap out of people sometimes. So mm. that's kind of, you know... That was definitely the shtick on Arrow, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
final question. Do you think we'll get to doing the Birds of Prey TV series on this podcast at some point? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one day, I'm sure. Yeah. That was an, that was another Batman TV series that couldn't have Batman in. Yeah. Um, that, you know, in from what I saw of it, in a lot of ways, that TV series does kind of feel like a precursor to the Flarrowverse, though. And particularly Arrow, mm. like a lot of what Arrow does, I think, was what the Birds of Prey TV show was trying to do, but was just a little bit too early. And, you know. Mm. Um, and first live action Harley Quinn, I think. Yeah, oh, really? That's, a, that's a nice fact. Yeah, Mia yeah. Sarah. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, I've never watched it. Otherwise, this question, I might have not needed you to explain it to me. But Wikipedia tells me that that's the case. <laughs> yeah, although I don't, well, I mean, I don't, I don't know how much relation it actually had to, uh, to the comic. Like, I know that it did have Oracle as having formerly been Batgirl, but um, like, I don't think Black Canary was actually Black Canary in it. Like, they never had her kind of fully in costume being Black Canary. Right. Well, it only lasted thirteen episodes, so to be Maybe fair to it, it didn't really get a, <laughs> get a chance. <laughs> Okay, um, well, so, I don't know, maybe maybe I'll end up reading some Birds of Prey, or uh, maybe it'll have to wait until we get to that TV show on the podcast. But at least I know a little bit more it's about a pretty, it. It's a pretty well-regarded series. I mean, it's been a long-running series, so it's had ups and downs, but it's had some some long, consistent runs by um, Dixon and, and Simone on it that have generally been quite well-regarded, so... And I think, I don't know if Simone's writing, no, is it Simone writing the new stuff um, for Rebirth? I don't think it is, is it? Um, um, let's have a look. I'm, I'm Googling it. Um, oh, no, it's, Julie it's, 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 it's Julie Benson and Shauna Benson doing it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's launching imminently. I always, launched, I always preferred Gotham City watch. Sirens, which <laughs> is like, same concept, but it was Harley Quinn, Poison Ivy and Catwoman. Yeah, and which was compromised by two things, which was one, the title, which was completely yeah. at odds with what... Because it was Paul Dini wrote it, mm-hmm. didn't it? And was it and Terry it was actually, Johnson who drew it? Yeah, the yeah. art sort of... Um, and I think Guillaume March did the covers as well, yeah, so the art pushed it in a cheesecake kind of direction. You know, Terry Dodson's a great artist, but is also a bit of a cheesecake artist. When and, So here's something I need you to explain to me. When comics people describe stuff as being cheesecake, is that kind of like... TNA. Of TNA, yeah. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and But like a kind of, yeah, a quite specific kind of TNA, like sort of... It's like it's good girl. It's like good girl, isn't it? Yeah. Like not, um, not a lot of flesh, but lots of cleavage. The um, Frank Cho. Yes, very, I mean Frank Cho is like textbook yeah. cheesecake artist. <laughs> it's like it's not a judgment on the quality of their art. You can be a terrible artist and be cheesecakey. Like a good another example would be um, Jim Balan, who was drawing Catwoman in the nineties. Like technically, he's a great artist, but very very cheesecakey. Um, the difference with between Frank Cho and Jim Balin is that Jim Balin is as, as much of an asshole in real life as <laughs> Frank Cho appears to be. Um, and, and is it female specific? Is there is, is there oh, an, yeah, yeah, yeah. an equivalent to cheesecake for men? Like I guess Rob Liefeld. Um, there was. I don't know if people came up with a phrase for it, but um, Mikhail Yanin's recent art on um, Grayson kind of attracted a bit of discussion around the fact that it was art that actually was, you know, kind of male objectifying, but <laughs> felt like it 
even though it was it was a male artist, felt a bit more female gaze rather than you know okay. because you know the, the argument you get. I mean, we're going we are going on a tangent here, but an argument <laughs> that a lot it. of people like comics readers who like to defend the excessive use of cheesecake art will say, oh, but the men are really unrealistically proportioned as well. But it's like you know a Rob Liefeld drawing isn't really many women's idea of a fantasy. Yeah. Um, whereas, it, yeah, you know, if, if you look at the art in something like Grayson, that's much more, you know, a kind of appealing, attractive man to the kind of person who would find a man attractive. So it needs um, a name that is a dessert like cheesecake, basically, but for <laughs> spotted <yeah>. dick. <laughs> Nailed it. There you go. I wonder, I wonder how well that reference travels. <laughs> Ah, well, on that note, I think we should probably move on um, in our discussion. And we're going to move straight into our discussion of Tim Burton's Batman Returns. Um, But before we do, let's take a listen to the trailer. I've been down here too long. It's time for me to ascend. From the sewers of Gotham... A new villain emerges. You didn't invite me, so I crashed! From the rooftops of Gotham, the perfect enemy comes to life. save this city is a creature of the night. Hey, stud. I thought we had something together. We do. While she craves a romance she can sink her claws into. You're getting into a girl. He plots a foul reign of destruction. My dear penguins, thanks to Batman, the time has come to punish all of Gotham! Okay, so that was the trailer for Tim Burton's Batman Returns. And Seb, we were chatting off mic just before we started, um, you know, saying where we might like to start with this discussion. Should we just dive in with the Penguin or Catwoman or 
Max Shrek, definitely, but not Batman, because the movie takes about half an hour to get to him. <laughs> um, <laughs> the movie occasionally forgets that it is yes. supposed to be a Batman film. <laughs> I, in my in my memory, I was like, well, the first film is really a Joker film, and it's the second film where Batman really comes to the fore. <laughs> and, uh, Michael Keaton, despite being really great, got shortchanged in these two yeah. films. Batman films, that neither of which are really about Batman. Um, but you mentioned that you thought it would be interesting to start off this discussion by talking about the difference in what this film's rep- reputation is to what you think it actually is. Um, so what did you mean by that? What do you think its reputation is and what do you think the film itself... Well, it's it's got... It's got a pretty strong reputation, um, and I, I should say I don't think that this means that I think it's a it's a bad film as such. Um, but you know, we'll get on to exactly what I think about it. Um, but it generally has a reputation. Like before the Nolan films, this would have been the one that I think most people would have comfortably said, "Oh yeah, Batman Returns. That's the best out of the, the Batman films." Yeah. Um, I think I think at the time it wasn't necessarily as well regarded as the first one, but I think. After the Schumacher ones, everyone kind of looked back at Batman Returns and went, oh, actually, Batman Returns was really good. And the other thing that people would say is, oh, Batman Returns is really dark and, you know, it's it's the kind of the dark Batman film. And, I mean, so there's so in both senses, I'm not sure that's true. I mean, firstly, you know, certainly taking the Nolan films into account, I don't think it's the best Batman film. Um, out of the original four on its on a, on the right day i could maybe say that i prefer it to the first burton one but i'm not sure that i think it does some more interesting things and i think it has some ways in which it's more stylish and more interesting but i'm not sure it's a better film than than batman 89 and i mean you know it is a better film than than forever and and robin but that doesn't take a huge <laughs> amount um and as far as the darkness goes i mean it certainly has a veneer and it certainly has moments where it suddenly goes really jarringly unpleasant but in almost every sense and i i may have said this about batman 89 but i think it's even truer here um this is not an adaptation of batman comics this is an adaptation of the adam west batman tv series i mean even down to the fact that the penguin plot is literally an episode of well a two-parter of batman 66 yeah. there is a batman 66 story where the penguin runs for mayor <laughs> it's like they, they have actually taken a story from that show and in terms of the feel and in terms of a lot of what it does this is completely in that tradition not the tradition of where the comics were at, at this point in time. And you see, I think looking back looking back on it now, the the thing that becomes very clear is how much an, of an influence this was on Batman the Animated Series. I think if you want to say that this is most similar to any other Batman, it's the Animated Series, because the Animated Series seems to have taken a lot of its inspirations from I think more specifically this film in terms of design and tone and character than it did even from the the first Burton film and obviously the the animated series came afterwards but um the the animated series because didn't the animated series start around about the time that this was coming out um like it was 92 Batman 
uh, animated, wasn't it? Yeah. I think th- I can definitely, and I, I think there is definitely an influence. I think Batman Animated nails its tone a lot more sure-footedly than than Batman Returns does. Like, I, I, I think, I think, I think Batman Animated is much clearer in what it's doing and what its style and tone are. Um, I think this uh, film can't me, make its mind up from one scene to the next. You see, for me, it, it, I, I don't have a problem with consistency of style or tone. It's the, it's the actual mechanics of the story and what I'm supposed to be invested in <laughs> driving me through the plot. Um, that's I, a, it, actually, that's, that's another me... point on the on the reputation. Just quickly, actually, because I think. Again, like people would talk about Batman eighty nine and say the problem with Batman eighty nine is that it doesn't really have a plot. Um and I, I've I definitely remember people would say about Batman Returns, oh well at least with Batman Returns they put more of a plot into it. Nope. This is worse <laughs> plot wise than Batman eighty nine. Batman eighty nine may not have much of a plot, but what plot it does have kind of makes sense. This does not make sense. <laughs> what do you reckon, James? Is it does it still for you feel like the best Burton film, the best I mean, because I think I think there would be a lot of people out there who um, aren't Chris Nolan fans, and um, I'm coming to you here, James, who could possibly <laughs> argue that um, that this is the best Batman film. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. Like, I I really liked The Dark Knight, even though I'm not a huge Nolan fan. Um, I think this is probably my second favorite of you know of every Batman film out there. So it does edge 89 for you. Yeah, I mean, I think the main difference between this and 89 for me is that like 89 was kind of telling a story I already knew Hmm. for the most part. And you'd never seen the story about the rocket strapped penguins. (laughs) Penguins, no. I mean, I just think like, I think aesthetically this one's more coherent in terms of its visuals, at least like, it feels like the first one was Tim Burton sort of like going, I'll do my version of Batman. And then the sequel was, I'm just going to do all the Tim Burton things that I like and Batman will be there. So like visually, I think it's better. Um, yeah. And I think having two villains, like even though the plot isn't great, I think having two different villains who are both good in their own ways, like makes I mean, it more interesting. Really? Well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I prefer this story to the kind of, like, I I think I probably said at the time, I'm not a huge fan of the Joker in the last Batman film. Like, it doesn't feel like the Joker to me. It just, you know, it for whatever reason, it, it didn't, didn't nail anything I like. Whereas this feels like believable versions of Catwoman and the Penguin, if nothing else. Yeah, I think for me, I... I find it difficult to separate the two films because I like and dislike them for different reasons. I think 89 is probably a more complete film, a more streamlined film. Um, but the individual little elements that are thrown into Returns and the occasional scene or um, the occasional kind of stylistic thing that Tim Burton is doing really gets me excited, like just in in a moment um and some of the iconic visuals here um yeah really really great even though by the time i get to the end of the movie i'm like i don't know what any character really wants to do (laughs) there doesn't seem like any great threat level to 
anyone really and yeah. <laughs> it just seems like a, it does seem like a kind of a live action cartoon where everyone's running around and it it just um but i, I, I think, think i think probably that as like a very unique approach to a, a comic book character but you couldn't make a film like this about a superhero anymore i did i remember when i got to the end i was just sort of sitting there watching going like so did he win like I guess he saved everyone. It just it didn't didn't seem like he'd sort of ended any major well, threat, did it? It just seemed like well, well, the thing, well yeah. that episode is over and I can go back to sitting in my car now. He didn't really save people from anything. What what <laughs> no. you know, the penguin <laughs> the penguin didn't oh no, I suppose no, because the yeah, the penguin had his plan about stealing the, the, the kids. He, he Batman does does rescue all the kids. But uh, does, that happens that a fair way before yeah, he does that off screen, and it happens before the end of the film. He beyond gives a little that, note to a monkey, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, beyond that, the penguin doesn't really have much of a plan because his mayoral plan is already over, and Max Shrek's plan is that he's going to steal an electricity surplus. And it's like, well, as diabolical <laughs> plans go, I mean, it's wrong, but I'm not sure if the city's actually going to be harmed by a man pretending to build a power plant but actually building a capacitor in order to steal something that they've got too much of. <laughs> I mean, Batman's incidental to all of this, isn't he, really? Because... Max Shrek and Selina Kyle, that conflict is yeah. set up when he throws her out the window. Max and the Penguin is established early on. Selina kind of allies herself to the Penguin and is also out to kill um, Shrek. And so you, you've kind of got this stuff going on. And Selina's the one who's ultimately going to try and take down Max Shrek. And... Batman doesn't really do anything beyond playing a line of dialogue of Penguin to the rest of Gotham City. So I guess that's his moment of defeating the villain. And then there's there's another 25 minutes after that where really all we're doing is seeing whether Selina Kyle can kill Max Shrek. Batman doesn't want her to, but she does. But she does. She succeeds. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the um... film... Michael Keaton really does, really does get shortchanged here because the mm. film opens, you get the kind of the origin story of Penguin um, and then you've got um, the the meeting with Max Shrek and then Selina Kyle comes in and then we get her origin and we get, um, uh, we get Shrek going down under the city and meeting Penguin for the first time. And all this kind of happens before... Bruce Wayne does anything. And there's a little bit of that in the first movie, but he does come into it more and more as the film goes on. And he gets kind of those big, a couple of big scenes towards the end to really shine outside of the Batsuit as well. Mm. Um, like when he meets... Yeah, I know, I know which bit you're thinking of. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and he doesn't really get to show any of that off here. Um, I still think it's a really good performance. And... Um, yeah, I would. I would love to. I would love to have seen a Batman movie with Michael Keaton, that like a Batman Begins style movie with Michael Keaton. I don't mean that in the style in the sense of watching him become Batman. Just no, a film but just that a is film concerned, that's about Batman. <laughs> yeah, concerned with why he is Batman, mm. um, because this film spends time going, why is Selina Kyle Catwoman? Why is uh, Penguin Penguin? Um, 
and I like I like the choice of those villains. I like how they reflect back on Batman. Um, but that reflection, weirdly, it seems actually is inverse. It's almost like what does Batman mean to Catwoman, and what does Batman mean to Penguin, rather than the other way around. It's, it's Whereas I of... think in a film like The Dark Knight, the Joker is a reflection a twisted reflection of Batman, whereas this is it's all about what it means to the villains. I mean, they, they, they are kind of, yeah, they're kind of going for setting... They set them both up in, in different ways as kind of mirrors of Batman. It's like with, with Selina, you have all the stuff about the masks and, um, you know, stuff like that scene, where they, which is actually a really great scene with the two of them at that masquerade ball. And it's like... That, the two that's people. probably my favourite scene in the movie, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, but like, you know, the two people who wear masks as as their characters not wearing masks at the party. And yeah, you could they, they have really good chemistry, the two of them. And that that scene with the two of them together is great. And with Penguin, you've kind of got the um, the being from the, you know, the wealthy background. Um, and, you know, this is what happened. You know, Penguin was abandoned by his parents. Bruce lost his parents. And these are the, the two different things that happened. The problem is, as you say, though, they they don't use that in either instance to actually examine Batman. Batman is just kind of the object against which the other two are compared, but you never really compare Batman to them back the other way. Um, you, it, it just takes for granted kind of who Batman is and, and what he does. And um, I mean, in that, in that sense, like that's, that's a valid approach to telling some superhero stories, isn't it? Because, like, there are characters who can't really change. So what you do is introduce, like, you can't evolve Judge Dredd's character, for example. Yeah. So, like, all the Judge Dredd stories are kind of, he's this monolith in the middle around which events happen. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's a valid approach to, to certain characters. But I think if you're doing a movie where you're doing one every four years or something, you've got, you know, you've got more scope to examine them the characters like in detail mm. i don't it, it seems like less of a problem having had nolan's trilogy since then so it's not like we have been deprived of batman movies trying to work out <laughs> how what makes batman tick <laughs> and this movie i mean for, so maybe if just in this discussion we kind of accept it's not a batman movie it's a movie about catwoman and penguin and go well I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman is absolutely sublime. Like, I love it so much. Um, well, the pair of them. So much about like, it. The pair of them yeah, are just absolutely, like, dialed up to 11 perfect. crazy. This, like, it's great. <laughs> it's very intense. Like, there's for not, this, for not this version of, of a Batman story that feels um, Adam West Batman inspired, yeah, yeah. feels like a live action cartoon, Tim Burton doing all of his Tim Burton-y things. Um, it, they, they're perfect for the tone that this film is striving for. And what you said, Seb, about kind of the lurchy kind of tone, um, I for me, that just feels very Tim Burton. I mean, um, I, uh, I the, the fact that in between these two Batman films, he went off and did Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> and I, I felt like you could see the influence of that film here. I mean, none more so than when the penguin is quite kind of waddling down with Max Shrek down the staircase from this kind mm. of like evil. And then he's suddenly like in this bourgeois office space with all of these 
chumpy kind of yuppie people who were going to run his mayoral campaign and just seeing the clash of those two worlds <laughs> and suddenly walking from a Tim Burton film into an early 90s office um, was, I, I thought, really wonderful. Um, and I loved I loved seeing the occasional clashes of um, kind of Burton going, yeah, this is, this is a, a kind of a real world. Um, compared to my world, and I, I, think, I liked I all of kind that of kind of lurchy too stuff. Occasional though, because Burton's Gotham is so artificial, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I, I mean, I, th- I think the first film pulls it off slightly better. I, 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 I think this film suffers a little bit from. It feels a lot more enclosed. It feels it's like they're they only, have, they only have a couple of sets, don't they? And they reuse them yeah. a lot. <laughs> And and so it, it, Gotham doesn't feel as sprawling as it did in the first film. But even so, like, you know, it just has this ridiculous, like, you cannot tell what time period it's supposed to be set in. I mean, that's a, you know, Tim, that's Tim Burton style generally. But like, you know, the, the way people dress and the way everything looks, um, it's everything is just, and even just the way people act, like, you know, look at what happens to the penguin at the very start of the film um, <laughs> and the way his parents are. And it's just like everything is just complete artifice. And that's fine and that works for Burton's version of Batman, but it means when you try to just throw in these little glimpses of reality, um, they they just feel a bit too clashy. And maybe they're supposed to feel clashy. but I think so. Um, it, it, all of a sudden, it's like this world that is extremely unrealistic. If you try to make it realistic, then that in itself is unrealistic. It's it's unconvincing to me, you know. Um, I mean, it's like me, the, the, it, the film has gone full pelt into the ridiculous already by then. Um, yeah, but I, I I feel like Burton as a filmmaker very like more often than not builds his films on intentional artifice. They're so stylized and. I don't really believe this as a real world Batman, well, um, and I don't. I, mean, I don't. I, I guess I don't want to. It feels. It feels like no, a comic yeah, that. I've, that oh, no, it, it completely and, is. That's, yeah. that's that's what I'm saying. But that's why I think when you try to introduce an element that is vaguely connected to the real world, I I don't think it comes off. I think I think it needs to always have that sense of high artifice in order to convince you that it is a world of high artifice <laughs> i mean like in terms of the the unrealism there's a there's a big kind of glaring point about this movie that the movie itself seems to have no interest in addressing but i think is really interesting to look at because well i think the fact that the movie doesn't address it shows you where the movie's priorities are but i think it sets this movie apart in a really interesting way um does selena kyle have superpowers in this film? And if so, how and why? Because the film implies that when she gets magically resurrected by cats, she has nine lives. Mm-hmm. But how? where does that come from? Where does she, why does she have superpowers? See, I, this is not a setting or a world that has established superpowers in any I way. I never got the impression that was a literal thing. Like I, But she literally says, I have X number of lives left. Oh, yeah, but like... You know, it's like a a conceit. Like she doesn't, lit- she's not literally cleaning herself when she like starts licking her forearm or anything. It's like she's just, you know. Okay, so how how does she survive the various <laughs> points in the film at which she should die? I, just I sheer force of will that, is how I interpret it. <laughs> I 
I think the point is the film's very unclear on it, but I think the film suggests I, that maybe think, she does, but I don't think it's interested in... I mean, up to this point, in, in I think this if you, franchise, no one has had superpowers, have they? Yeah, I think if you yeah. go I in mean, thinking the, it's the a comic book film, default. like if you go in thinking it's a comic book film, there might be superpowers, then maybe you look for them. But I, like, I never interpreted there as being any I think, superpowers. I think, the end, I think the end kind of implies that she has to have some kind of superpowers given that we see yeah. Max Shrek's child corpse and Catwoman survives. Um and I but yeah, you're right, Seb, it's not it's not really concerned about that. It's more concerned that it's got a really cool looking character who interacts with Batman and uh Bruce Wayne in a really great way. And um is is more concerned with what the character does than why you know the 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 origin it's there and it kind of just feels like 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 i say a thing that you'd probably buy in a in a comic or I mean, cartoon i th- i think it's 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 another example of something that i think i basically think almost every problem that this film has come like is in one source and like i basically think everything that's good about this film which is the the look of it the style the production design and the cast are fighting a really bad script and it's bad (laughs) in the sense of the story is badly constructed and doesn't you know in some places just doesn't go anywhere and and plot threads are dropped and it's just all over the place and also dialogue wise i know this film has got some famous lines but it's like there are so many really bad lines in this film and it's just um yeah it's i i think it's a mess of a script and i think i think it's it's to the credit of particularly the cast, but you know to an extent Burton as well, that I think this film is quite well remembered because of the work that they do to make the script not seem as bad as it is. But I really think it's it's not a good script. Yeah, I would agree with you on the dialogue. There's definitely a couple of you're right, I'd like iconic, memorable lines. But um, I know that the, the script went through a couple of different iterations. There was originally going to be a Robin. Uh, they went as far as uh, costume testing with a young Marlon Wayans yep. in the Robin costume, which is crazy. Um, <laughs> he was, yeah, he was. He was fully signed on, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. Um, Harvey Dent was going to be back. So that was Billy D in the first one, wasn't it? And yeah. the taser kiss from Catwoman at the end was originally going to be Catwoman turning Harvey Dent into Two Face at that moment, um, but they basically dropped that as well. Um, but yeah, so they brought in Daniel Waters, who wrote Heathers, to rewrite the um, Sam Ham script. And it went through various kind of changes here and there. Um, and I wonder whether maybe it ended up with a script that Tim Burton went, OK, there's enough interesting elements here that I feel I can flex enough of my creative muscles and enjoy this movie. Um, but they didn't actually get to the point of going here are stakes or here is here is something to do with batman or here is why the plot and why it makes sense and yeah i I mean basically what i'm saying is long way around i completely agree with you seb the the the, the, the stuff that's great about this film is burton and the cast and the design i do think though it does so it does have that central idea of let's look at uh, the the kind of the other side of the coin of what batman could be um, so let's look at him as kind of like the child of privilege. Um, and he is 
a guy who was brought up without his parents, but his parents died and he kept all of the trappings of that privilege that he was born into compared to this other guy who was born into that privilege. But because he was a different kind of freak. So Batman was created a freak when his became a freak when his parents were killed um, because that drives him into becoming Batman. Whereas Penguin is born as that freak and is sent away and so it's this there's there's a nice little examination there i mean penguin says it you know like you know you're you're just what i could have been or i'm just what you could have been and then the same is true of catwoman who yes dresses up in a mask we see her in a scene that recalls the scene in the first film where she stops someone being mugged um but she tears up the mugger's face and also kind of turns on the the girl who was being mugged herself in the first place and you go that's just that's just batman with the dial turned up to 11 it's someone who that kind of little little notch of crazy that she's got that little that little bit of craziness that that would drive anyone to dress up as a as an animal and go out into the street and stop crime um, she is just that little bit more unhinged than he is. Um, and so I think that really works. And I think that works as a kind of a jumping off point for the film. But there is, there's, there's really very little plot beyond the, the, the penguin running for mayor stuff. And I don't think that that, that doesn't feel like it has any real stakes other than, yeah, Shrek, Shrek's going to get his power plant if that happens. Yeah, it does sort yeah, of seem so like, like, what's so great about it, being the mayor of Gotham? I mean, that's, that's I think, probably the main point is that they're going, you think Penguin's the villain, but he's not really the villain. The villain is Shrek because Shrek is, mm-hmm. he's, he's the can, kind of... Can we of, call him Max, by the way? Because I keep, <laughs> keep, yeah. keep imagining <laughs> <laughs> Um... I do, I do like that. So Max Shrek has, uh, does he have any parallels in the comics? Because clearly, name wise, Burton is referencing, you know, Nosferatu, Max Shrek. Um, yeah. But does does he have parallels in the comics? I think there are maybe characters you could compare him to, um, but he's not. I mean, he's not a specific drawn from the um character drawn from the comics and if anything i think um i think if i look at kind of businessman character you know like evil businessman characters who've um turned up in the comics they'd probably post date him rather than predate him max lord um, be anything like max lord no well max lord does predate him. yeah and max lord is quite different in the comics from what he is in Supergirl. Um, I just know that he's kind of he's kind of an evil businessman who like is pulling the strings I think it's of more the justice. Of an, it's just an archetype though, isn't it? Like it's yeah. not um, it's not any specific yeah. version. Like he's as much like Lex Luthor as Max Lord. Don't, I think it's... Don't, don't get me started on how Max Lord is not supposed to be evil, but it's only because of one development in one particular <laughs> comic years later that he's now seen as a villain. It's like he's not supposed to be a villain. Um, um, but if it, it's credit to Burton that he creates this character who could be just boring, you know, businessman pulling the strings from behind. But cast Christopher Walken. I was going to say, I would say it's credit to Christopher Walken. Well, yes, but, then, but then look at the character design. I mean... That that hair and yeah. those eyebrows. I mean, the eyebrows particularly are <laughs> wonderful. Um, there's one scene um, with, um, in fact, it's just before Max pushes Selena out the window, 
And um, so she sat at the desk and has kind of made it clear that she knows what his plan is. Um, And the light is shining up from underneath them. And the light is shining up at him and it kind of casts these shadows above his eyebrows because his eyebrows stick out off his face. So you get kind of these really arch villainous um, eyebrow shadows that make him look even more evil than he normally looks. And then Selena, who is wearing her kind of like big rimmed glasses, um, the light from below is kind of shining up and casting almost like a mask, like a cat mask shadow on her face. And it's just it's just a wonderful little bit of cinematography and lighting from um, Tim Burton. And um, it's those little touches that I just think, you know, that's that's what happens when you are doing filmmaker led superhero stories. And let's not pretend (laughs) that anything that's happening currently with Marvel or DC is film like maker led to the extent that something like this is where Tim Burton could just make a decision as specific as that. Um, but yeah, I, I, um, I think Chris Walken does a great job with Max. Um, was that better, Seb? <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I, I think that's probably the other thing that is pinning this film together in terms of an idea for a jumping off point, which is this penguin looks like he's the villain, but he's actually having his strings pulled. But it's kind of like a, it's a fun little relationship between Max and penguin where you don't kind of know who's playing who at what point um and but the the idea that the the real world parallel of okay someone's running for office but there's a money man behind him who's pulling the strings and um i don't know i found it slightly eerie watching this film uh in 2016 and going (laughs) If you if you merge together the characters of Max Shrek, the kind of the rich, powerful <laughs> businessman, and then the weird kind of strange looking, but somehow charismatic to a certain area of the populace, you really think that Oswald Cobblepot is going to make Gotham great again in this movie. <laughs> um, and so I kind of, kind of liked that as well. Um, so yeah, I think they're probably the two things that are pinning together the script and they're the ideas that drive the film forward. Um, but I mean, Seb, what you said about the film kind of losing threads here, there and everywhere, the mayoral plot, it ends 25, 30 minutes before the end of the film. Batman doesn't really have much to do with any of that stuff that I just said. Um, and he he does successfully scupper the mayoral bid by playing a bat CD. Yeah. I mean, in, in 1992... <laughs> Give credit for that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's He's got a CD burner. Yeah, early adopter, definitely. But yeah, the film, the film does lose stuff. And I think, it's, I think it's a case that the further you get into the film, it's more a case of just, just trying to enjoy the performances. It just wants to throw the, the characters the at the screen and just have them bounce off each other, doesn't it? That's yeah. basically what it's concerned with for most of the second half. I mean, that does, yeah, I mean, that does uh, work, uh, though, doesn't it? I mean, it's not... Yeah, you know, it's not a disaster of a film. It's kind of it's watchable. Oh, no, from, no. Yeah, it's watchable from scene to scene. Definitely, I could, I could kind of do without the. Uh, maybe this is a scene that you guys both really like, but I, I could kind of do without the Penguin and Catwoman teaming up scene. Oh, I think I think that veers too much into Penguin just being cringily uncomfortable, particularly a particular line that he says. I to her. really uh, liked it. 
<laughs> I thought you probably <laughs> No, I don't know. I mean, I, for me, that was a bit much. Like, I think if you're going to have that as a through line, you need to, you know, not. What, what was not, the line? Don't, was it, basically it, have his penguin, belt buckle or whatever. Like Penguin has a few lines. I'm sure there's one point where he says, I'd like to fill her void. <laughs> it's the line that's a pun on her name about cats oh yeah say it because um and uh, and a part and a part of female anatomy yeah i can't remember the exact line but i know exactly what you're talking about um yeah i i think it's I, just I that in liked... that scene they are both at the absolute height of both characters over the top lunacy yes and it's just a little too much without somebody else there in the scene to balance it even if it was walken in the scene and i never thought i'd say christopher walken would be the, the actor who <laughs> ran in a scene but um it's just a little too over the top for me like and it's like specifically for me i think if you're gonna like do batman with sort of weird sexual dynamics in it you have to like commit to that interpretation otherwise it comes off very tonally odd well it's not like you can't do it with the character but i think it feels to me like tim burton had this kind of pervy dominatrix idea for catwoman and <sighs> was forced to tone it down as much as possible and that well that yeah i think like it's a prestige of it. it's obviously it's it's a big hollywood blockbuster that's having a lot of money spent on it and i think the fact that there is this kind of weird sexual deviancy running through it is interesting. And um, yeah, it's probably in as much depth as you can ever hope to explore it. But I like that Burton's kind of going, here's this one just really creepy guy in terms of like, he's been living down in the sewers and has probably never had any sexual contact in his life. And he's suddenly... <laughs> got these beautiful women around him and he literally can't control himself. He's a, he's just a creepy sexual deviant in a really weird way. Whereas Batman and Catwoman are two people who dress up in rubber and leather and go around the city and engaging in violence. And, you know, it's very easy to draw the BDSM line there. And I, I think it would be great if if he had the scope to do a little bit more with that, which obviously he didn't because this is a big Batman blockbuster <laughs> movie. Um, but I kind of like the clashing of those two things in that scene, and I think it's just it's I, I don't know. I think I think I like when Burton is dialing things up as much as possible in this film. That's that's what I'm here to see, and in that scene where. Yeah, some of the lines are a little bit a little bit <laughs> over the top, but I kind of love that that is the scene showing those two characters at their most unhinged. And I, I love how after Catwoman puts the bird in her mouth that kind of all her lipstick is kind of smeared over her chin. And it, I like the way that Catwoman is treated the whole way through the film in that she is... um. She's she's never presented as either evil or heroic, I don't think. She's treated as just very confused. And just, I think, I think flat out is that, you know, Batman is probably uh, has a couple of screw lo screws loose to become Batman in the first place. And Selina is presented from the moment she comes back as Catwoman as completely 
completely mentally ill. And so you have this kind of this look of her as uh, this like kind of perfect, sexy, slinky cat in the in the leather outfit and Burton leans on that sexiness in certain scenes. But in that scene, you kind of, you know, you've got the little rips in the costume and the, the lipstick smeared and she's so pale and she very noticeably has the lines around her mouth, obviously to make her look more cat-like as well. But um, I like the, I like the imperfection in the character design there as well. And I like the fact that, that, that the film is going for, it's, it's, it's telling you she is, (laughs) however sexy and great you might think she looks this is this is not this is not great she's she's past the point um of a character you can root for yeah i mean i think maybe Uh, maybe my problem with it is just sort of saying like oh you know superheroes dress up in leather and rubber like um, they're all just perverts really it's kind of i guess maybe it's something having been a superhero fan for 20 years or whatever you get a bit tired of seeing yeah and maybe like i mean especially once do you think it's a negative here though do you think it's between maybe like maybe not here like i think i think you've made a very good defense of it existing at all i just think if especially someone who's like an outsider because like tim burton isn't like a super fan or anything like Mm. coming in and going like i'm gonna do a realistic treatment superheroes Mm. are all perverts like mark miller does it for the shock value and Alan Moore did it from within the genre. But I think if you're, if you're doing it outside, it becomes a sort of punchline and sort of punching down specifically. It's not like, it's not necessarily respectful, but again, I think your defense of it, your defense of it gives it context that maybe, you know, argues against what I've said, but I just, I just don't read it as, I just don't read it as a punchline or punching down or anything like that because I just I think the film presents it particularly in the relationship. Yes, um Penguin is a creepy sexual deviant. Um but I think that's almost because he has been so sexually repressed and you know has been kind of isolated from the opposite sex whereas Batman and well, and Bruce and Selina and Batman and Catwoman. I think it's just presented as a um, a kind of really hot, sexy relationship. Um, you know, the kiss they share in in that masquerade ball scene is great, and uh, when she licks his face, I mean, I, 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 it doesn't to me seem like someone saying, "Oh, aren't they weird perverts?" It seems to me like going. Um, these guys could be having some real hot sex. Like they could <laughs> in the in the R-rated mer- version of this movie, these guys have had the best sex. You it guys. does like it does seem odd to me. I can't remember what rating this has, but I'm fairly sure I saw this at the cinema. Uh, I think this was a fifteen. Do you think? Twelves um, did exist by this point because twelves well, were have, created. Yeah, for I'd, the first I'd have been twelve Batman when film. I came when it came out. So. Um, Let's have a look. Batman Returns, BBFC. Certainly on Sky, because I, I got it from Sky Movies to watch for this, and uh, rather than getting the DVD out, and it came up as a 15. It's a 15. Okay, so I, must, I must not have seen it in the cinema then. I've got the box set of all Or you saw it in the cinema and just got let in. Yeah, they're all. it's just a 15 for the entire box set, and I can't imagine that all of them are 15s. <laughs> no, um, the other two are... Uh, PGs, the later two are PGs, and the first one, first one is a twelve, was a twelve at the cinema, 
and was a 15 uh, on video because they didn't do tw- – I think we discussed this on the previous yeah. part. Uh, they, it, it, I think it was a 15 on video, uh, but I believe they may have – been able to reclassify although you can't reclassify unless materials changed even if the certificates changed so uh i think that i think the video of uh, the easiest thing to do is to look up batman dvd and look at the cover <laughs> um, it's interesting though i think blockbusters in the earlier 90s were pitching to an older yes, audience than they are doing now i mean suicide squad uh well probably best not to discuss that given that we've discussed <clears> it a week before, technically <laughs> I mean, so Suicide Squad was a 15, but that's that's a rarity. And you often get the get the impression with films that do hit the 15 in blockbuster terms, you know, now that Mm. they are films designed for 13 year olds that happen to be rated for 15 year olds. Well, I mean, we'll we'll sort of cover this in the next films, but part of the reason they sort of ejected Burton was because they wanted someone who. And part of what made the Schumacher films bad was that they were like, give us films we can sell to kids. Like, yeah. well, wasn't they, it um, Batman and Robin specifically as well? They 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 were like, make us vehicles because we want vehicles yeah. that will sell more um, on the toy, you know, on the toy shop. I, I believe that McDonald's pulled their promotion. McDonald's, obviously, after the success of the first film, were, were doing like Happy Meal stuff for Batman Returns and pulled it because they thought the film was too dark for kids. Just on a, this is kind of this is tangential to to what you were actually discussing, but it's it's a point that you mentioned a couple of times, and I think it's quite an interesting thing to pick up on. You mentioned a couple because I think it's something that the film is confusing in its portrayal of. Um, you mention about uh, the penguin living his whole life in isolation in the sewers, mm-hmm. but he doesn't. Um, the people of Gotham think that, and the film leads you to believe that that's the case because it shows him going into the sewers and being found by the pigs. I remember watching that just now and think maybe it's just the, you know the practicalities of actually having a child now. I was like, how's that child even going to grow up? Like, who's going to feed it and change its nappies? Um, the penguins. But, well, it's yeah. like the Jungle um, Book, but with penguins. The the film implies. Um, and and the people of Gotham are led to believe that the, that the penguin has lived his entire life in the sewers. He hasn't. He gets out of the sewers and he goes and joins a travelling circus, and that's where he gets his gang from. He's spent most of his life in a travelling freak show in a circus. Does the film and say becomes, that? Yes, because um, there's a. It's another one of these plot threads that's dropped. But early in the film, Batman is trying to prove that he that. Penguin is not all as he yeah. seems, and he investigates and reads a load of newspaper stories about this traveling circus gang. And he concludes that Penguin is the leader of the traveling circus gang. And so the implication is Penguin has not been living in the sewers all of that time, he's been off with the traveling circus. That's how that's <laughs> yeah. where he got his gang from. That's not so clear. he goes also... back to the sewers in order to then emerge. But the film is really muddled on that, particularly because when it realizes it's not that bothered about the mayoral plot, it drops that side of that investigation anyway nobody really cares at that point when they know that he's actually a villain yeah Um, the the traveling circus people as well i thought that that was a strange decision given that your last film had had the joker as the life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs learn more at uh1.com 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Yeah, I, was actually, I was actually spending like the first half hour of this rewatch going, am I supposed to think that these are kind of like the leftover goons from the Joker in the first movie that have kind of like found a new boss? Well, that's or? the way as well. When they, when they like take over the Batmobile, they put a kind of like candy stripes device on there mm. like it's kind of it's very clown themed still yeah i mean a lot a lot of them are clowns especially the ones that attack in that first action sequence yeah. mm-hmm. um so yeah and, and and one of them the bloke who's the organ grinder though is um vincent chiavelli um, yes the, yeah. the <laughs> fine droopy-eyed character actor <laughs> yeah i think the last thing i watched him in um it's one of the the great in fact the freak show episode of the x-files um in which he's fantastic mm. in yeah. um uh but yeah he's he's always good value he's one of those people who's always that. nice to see pop up in things yeah, yeah and you're yeah. never not going to recognize him either yeah um <laughs> should we talk more about the penguin though because um I, I i really liked all of the stuff in the opening of the film i just thought this it's it felt so tim burtony um it felt like this was just tim burton being let off the leash and the fact that that opening title sequence can just be the that that um cop floating through for the whole time and just shadows and uh, like not cutting away at any point and it just and and that coming after the scene with um obviously Paul Root, in fact, the two peewee um, cast members as <laughs> as Penguin's parents. Um, that's, that's great, though, yeah. Paul, Paul Rubens. Yes, <laughs> with the monocle and everything. Yeah. Um, wordless. I mean, there's there's not much dialogue for quite a while in this film. It's really the boardroom scene with Max Shrek where we start getting some. But even after that, we kind of get the first action sequence, and that's largely wordless as well. I was thinking, huh. This is this is an interesting start to the movie, and uh, given that Batman was barely there as well. Um, but yeah, I love all that opening stuff. But I did think that talking of drop threads, the the penguin parents thing seemed to be one of the biggest ones because surely that is the big parallel that you want to set up between Batman and Penguin. And you go to the point of establishing his parents at the start and actually showing them. Um, and there was kind of throwaway lines to like he maybe he was looking for his parents or or like I think Bruce says to Alfred at one point or I'm sure he knows who his parents are or something like that. Um, and I thought it was strange that we never we never came back to it. 
Um, well, again, I mean, it's something the film kind of slightly glosses over, but again, he knows exactly who he is and who his parents are. Mm. Uh, he he doesn't go looking for them because he wants to find out. He goes looking for them as a cover story. Yeah, but uh, did, would you not think that they would eventually come back and play into things? Because if his whole if his whole driving <clears throat> motivation is um, I was shunned by my parents for what I look like, I'm now going to come back to Gotham and get revenge on all of these kind of surface dwellers. Um, should uh, you know, should his parents have not played into that as like the personification of that? Would it, I? I was just I was just expecting to see them or at least hear them referred to again, especially when Penguin's end plot is to strap some rockets to some penguins into Gotham. Um, you know, yeah. it just seemed <laughs> like a, a much more much a much more simple thing to do. There is just to say. Penguin is going after his parents, and you could you could have the parallel then of uh, Catwoman going after Max and Penguin going after his parents. You've got to make Batman choose. He's beating up Penguin, and you know, it's like, where is she? <laughs> Just wanted to do that every time we do a Batman podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's that. That I thought was a missed opportunity. Anyway. Um, in terms of the the character design and the origin, I don't think I don't think I've ever read a comic with Penguin in. I've seen him on the animated series and I've seen him on the video games. Um, but for me, Danny DeVito's Penguin is kind of the the most I know about him. So, uh, well, and I guess I guess Gotham as well, which is a very different depiction mm-hmm. of that character. So, what what I want to know is. How Tim Burtony is this? Is is the penguin in the comics literally a deformed guy? Um, does he have this same origin story, or is he completely different? These are definitely sub questions because I don't. I don't think I've read anything with the penguin in. And there's one thing I've read actually, but I'm yeah. <laughs> You're saving it for the recommendations. You're quite. <laughs> I wonder what this is going to. I wonder if this is going to be something that I considered recommending and then decided not I'll to. I'll be interested. Um, yeah, he's kind of. He's never really. He's a character that they've struggled to pin down, and I think actually, I mean, actually, I think the definitive take has and the definitive interpretation has always been the the Burgess Meredith version. That's um, visually, I think, probably yeah. the most. And I think the I think the the movie version probably informed him for quite a while as well like i don't recall him showing up much at all in comics between batman 66 and batman returns like you know there are there's maybe the odd story that he would have appeared in um particularly in thinking the late 80s they started to use him a bit more but you know he was i think a bit of a joke really what they've done in more recent years is they've um played him up as a crime lord um and what they've kind of done with him in some ways is not dissimilar to what marvel done with the owl i was about to say is he just Um, (laughs) dc's version of the owl pretty much um but there's a quite what's been quite nice particularly in um, some recent stuff um in uh new detective comics um set him up 
he's kind of an arch nemesis, not just for Batman, but for Bruce Wayne, because as Oswald Cobblepot, he's this kind of, you know, he's known as having a similar background to Bruce Wayne in this kind of, you know, Gotham City old money. Mm. And he has been, you know, but he's also known to have been a crime lord and, and criminal and, and is trying to sort of establish himself as a powerful figure within the city and fighting this this reputation and, and stuff. Um, well, you know, an entirely justified reputation because he is a crime lord. But um, so it's, you know, his stories have tended to be as much on that side of things as the actually battling Batman in costume sort of thing. And in terms of the... So the, the the design here in the movie with the the literal kind of like penguin fins and the so the 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 beak and the short round kind of you know look yeah the is physical that, is, that, is that anything that comes really. from the comics? I mean, aside from the nose, he's always had the big long nose. You know, he's always he's always been someone who looks like a penguin so mm. people give him the nickname the penguin but he's not someone who's physically mutated to be like a penguin it's just that he's a short round guy with a long nose who dresses in a tuxedo basically it's 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 interesting i mean it obviously i think this is a perfect role for Danny DeVito, he is fantastic the role was written for him there was never really anyone else in mind <laughs> and um yeah he's he's really wonderful i love the design of the character um which apparently was um stan winston um did some of the work for the for the character design here um but it it it's it's strange i mean maybe it's not strange because it's tim burton making these design decisions but it's almost strange that the character feels so much more absurd conceptually on the big screen than what you're describing in comics and normally you kind of have to make the other changes you have to make a character more believable for film you have to like strip away some of the more absurd aspects whereas this has gone what if his body is literally deformed <laughs> to the point that he is that much penguin looking and you know with the teeth and the kind of the green blue <laughs> spittle kind of that oozes out of his mouth <laughs> the, the black eyes i mean i, I mean, think they they go for it. They really go for it with this character design, even more so than Catwoman. I was going to say, like that's true to an extent with Catwoman as well. Like in in the comics, she tends to be like a cat burglar. Like there's none of the mm. like she's not crazy. Certainly, she doesn't have this kind of outlandish origin. No, like they all. yeah, and she hasn't got this like sort of weird sewn together suit or anything. Like it's all it's much more practical in the comics from the word go. So I think I think that is old Burton's influence there. So has she ever had superpowers in the comics? No. That's interesting. Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> I mean, because I just assumed because I mean, doesn't the I mean the, I've got very very vague memories of this, but doesn't the Halle Berry Catwoman start with the same kind of like being yes. laid strewn on the street, cats licking yeah, her? Yeah, but and that's that's because that project is essentially a, a development Famous. of the Michelle Pfeiffer spin-off that they were going to mm. make in the mid 90s. So they kept have the watched. powers aspect, but yeah, I would have watched the I've never seen the Halle Berry one, but I, I would have watched one that was actually <laughs> We'll get to it. Oh, uh, we will. Um, but no, the point so... is is that that, you know, that that is an adaptation of the movie Catwoman. That that film bears 
I would, even though, I, okay, I haven't seen it, but I'm going to hazard a guess that that film bears less relation to the comics than, like, almost anything else we will ever cover on this podcast. <laughs> that That is very interesting, though. So what you're basically saying is that in Catwoman and Penguin, the film has taken two characters who in the film are kind of, in the comics are kind of grounded in reality, no real superpowers to speak of, um, and has given them both very much more outlandish things mm. in the film. I mean, Batman's villains generally, and there are exceptions, they don't tend to have superpowers because yeah. Batman doesn't have superpowers. <laughs> Batman fights criminals. He fights criminals who dress up in silly costumes and have gimmicks because he dresses up in a silly costume and has a gimmick. But they don't tend to have superpowers because if they had superpowers, they would quite easily defeat him. That's why when Bane comes along... Batman versus Superman should have just been Superman throwing Batman into the sun, is what we're saying. Yeah, exactly. Um, but so that's it's interesting that the film... It gives them these more convoluted origins. It gives them more kind of outlandish characteristics, costumes, um, and yet doesn't the, actually you know, the... give them superpowers. So it, they still are essentially well, criminals. I mean, the the, the, the Catwoman Nine Lives thing is kind of a thing, but it doesn't really have any impacts on the film until right at the end. I don't think. It's not really until that final showdown with Shrek. And I'm not even sure that that would have been explicit with her coming back at the end if they didn't have plans for the Michelle Pfeiffer character going forward. I think probably... No, they didn't because they shot that. Um, the shot of her head at the end, that's not Michelle Pfeiffer. Yes, that's a stunt um, woman. Because it was it? added late and she wasn't around, so it's a stunt double. Um, so but I don't it, was, think it wasn't film, in the script and it was added really late. I don't think the film for 99% of its running time has any intentions that Catwoman has any real superpowers beyond the fact that she came back unscathed from a fall. Um but even then, she falls through the kind of barriers and stuff, doesn't she? She also, well, yeah, and well, yeah, but like, I don't know. I think she's supposed. She actually uses the words "you killed me," "Batman killed me," "Penguin killed me." She uses the words "killed." Mm. She, I think, she is killed by Max. Um, also, when she comes back, she's suddenly really athletic, like a cat that she wasn't before. Like the film gives us no implication that she's into fitness and mm. and um, <clears throat> gymnastics and stuff. And then suddenly, she's able to do backflips while blowing up a department store. Um, I I think I think she is brought back to life somehow by magical cats and given cat-like abilities. <laughs> I genuinely believe that that is what the film is suggesting, but I think it shies away from outright stating it because it's ludicrous. <laughs> I think we spent more time worrying about it than Tim Burton did. Probably he doesn't he, he doesn't care whether she's got superpowers or not. He's got some cool stuff that he wants to show off her doing, and um, he I... does it. And Michelle Pfeiffer's great like really 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 danny danny devito is great but he's kind of doing what i expect of him this this is probably the iconic michelle pfeiffer performance i actually i think as good as that costume is and as iconic as that scene with her kind of straddling batman on the rooftop licking his faces um <laughs> the the i think my favorite my favorite kind of 
Michelle Pfeiffer moments in this movie are when she's not um when she's not in the costume when she's doing the Selena Kyle stuff and I kind of like the bumbling uh you know secretary with no confidence early on as it's just she's kind of like bit, a fun um, little she's a bit Cara isn't she <laughs> in those a bit who, sorry a bit Cara, a bit Melissa Benoist. Yeah, I can see that. I was more well. reminded of Uma Thurman in whichever Batman she's in, Batman and Robin. In Batman and yeah. Robin. Oh, God. Uma Thurman in those <laughs> scenes is not good. Oh, that's going to be fun when we get to that film. But, I mean, all that stuff, that stuff's okay, but I really, actually, the, the bits that Keaton is good in this film are this, um, when he gets something to do with the parts where it's him... Um, pursuing Selena Kyle romantically outside of the costumes and um, the scene they have together in Wayne Manor and the masquerade ball scene. Um, uh, I just think those two have a really, really strong chemistry Um, and it it would be, it would have been nice to see a little bit more of it. But weirdly, this isn't a short film. It's, you know, it's two hours plus, but it, Mm. it feels like, I, I do come out of the film feeling shortchanged in quite a lot of different areas. And I go back and go, how did that last for two hours and five minutes? Like what, what, what happened that justified that running time? Um, because all of the stuff that I liked, I wanted more of, and I can't remember what I didn't like that I would have stripped away from it. It's quite interesting. If you look at this film and uh, Batman 89 together, that, it seems to be the case that in Tim Burton's Batman films, some of the strongest material comes um, when Michael Keaton is being Bruce Wayne rather than Batman at parties. <laughs> yeah, and pretty much anything set in Wayne Manor is always good in all of them. Even if, I, while it does create, it's even you know we we talked about in the last film how utterly contrived it is when he flies the Batwing up to the moon just to get that amazing <laughs> shot of the bat yes, symbol yeah. against the moon. In this film, you have him shining bat signals onto his own house just so you can get that admittedly absolutely amazing shot of him standing up with the bat symbol on the wall behind. It is a fantastic, incredibly iconic shot, but it completely gives away his secret identity to anyone who happens to be looking at Wayne Manor at that moment. Some bloke walking his dog outside of Wayne Manor going, ah, guess Bruce Wayne's Batman then. Unless it's Alfred. Unless it's Alfred. I mean, for me, like, Alfred's really uh, good in this movie. He's we get some I'll nice comic relief moments from Michael Goff. The ripping I, the invitation to the Shrek ball, <laughs> I thought particularly was and great. I, I like their conversation about how stupid it was of Alfred to let Vicky Vale into the back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, the 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 dry humor in almost every exchange between those two is is really strong. Um, are you coming, Alfred? I think I'll take the stairs, Master Bruce. Um, every time, um, just really strong. I mean, Burton gets his casting right throughout these two films, you know, most of the way. I mean, even like Billy D never got to become Two-Face, but I would have loved to have seen that. Mm. They And they do cast someone who, while he's hilariously awful... I mean, I don't know if they gave the guy a little bit of makeup to look like Christopher Walken, but um, the guy playing Chip, uh, <laughs> Shrek's son, who gets like one line of dialogue that is like he's doing a Christopher Walken impression, and it's so hilariously bad. 
but he kind of looks like Christopher Walken and sounds like Christopher Walken, and it's quite impressive. I do think between these two characters, Penguin and Catwoman, it does seem... I mean, maybe this is a Batman villain thing, that he just has such a good rose gallery. But considering what you're saying about Penguin being relatively minor key in terms of Batman villains and has changed vastly and that this is completely a different take. You know, Burgess Meredith, Danny DeVito, and in Gotham, which is not a great show, but Robin Lord Taylor's Penguin is probably the best thing about it. And it's the one thing that they kind of latched onto from the pilot going forward as, oh, this is a character that's worked. Let's keep using him. Um, And the same for Catwoman. I don't, I don't really think that, I mean, there's Anne Hathaway is a very different version of that character to Michelle Pfeiffer's, but in very different ways, they're both very good performances. And I don't know, is this just a Batman villain thing? Because Joker, we've had some <clears throat> very good performances. Don't know whether we'll be able to say that about Jared Leto yet, because this is a pre-record. But <laughs> when the listeners are listening to this, they'll probably have heard us either going huh, that was a thing, or, <laughs> oh, God. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm expecting that we thought it was terrible. Well, we can record both versions. We can do, well, Jared Leto really pulled yeah. it off. Jared Leto sucked. <laughs> yes, okay, we'll cut one of those two in when we put the podcast out. <laughs> but is this just, do you think it's just a Batman villain thing? I mean, Batman... Or is it just a Batman villain thing in the hands of a capable director, because I don't think you would say it for all of the villains that follow. <laughs> like, I think it franchise. is fair to say, like, with the possible exception of Spider-Man, like Batman's got sort of the best rogues gallery in comics. Like, I, yeah, it's it, it's generally held that Batman and Spider-Man have. The, yeah, the two, like you can pick you can pick any of those characters and get sort of an iconic idea. Um, I mean, it seems like in Marvel and DC Comics that, from my experience anyway, quite regularly a Batman villain will become someone else's villain or that a Spider-Man villain will become someone else's villain because they just had the best ones from the start. So you look at Suicide Squad and that's got mostly Batman villains in it. (coughs) Yeah, I mean, it's it's notable that, say, Catwoman got her own series. Because, like, that's, you know, that's a character concept you can just run and run with. Mm. Um, like, the Punisher side out as a Spider-Man villain. Kingpin was, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, yeah, Kingpin migrated yeah. to Daredevil eventually. But, yeah, I mean, part of it is longevity. Because, like, those characters have been around monthly for, you know, 50 years or whatever. 50, 60 years. Like, so, of course... But Superman doesn't seem to have the depth of rogues. That... Yeah, true. I think Fantastic Four don't seem to have the same depth that Spider-Man has. I think it it partly comes back to, um, with Batman in particular, something that I was talking about before about, you know, Batman's villains tend to be kind of crime lords and criminals, um, you know, albeit with gimmicks rather than people with superpowers. And in general, your villains tend to be reflective of the hero. So they tend to be the type of villain that the hero can fight. In practice, that often means that a villain that works for one character works because they're very specifically tailored to that character and to that character's power set, and so they don't necessarily work with another. I mean, that's that's one. notably the case with X Men villains. Like, you don't see a lot of crossover because 
it's difficult. Like X Men villains tend to be mutants and mutant themed villains, so not many of them cross over to other characters. Yeah, whereas, albeit for different reasons, Batman and Spider Man's rogues galleries tend to be here is a criminal with a gimmick. And in Spider-Man's case, it's the I'm sure we've talked about it before on Spider-Man pods, but it's the, you know, Spider-Man's villains are all these kind of um, you know, creature-related gimmick villains that in some way represent the opposite of a particular aspect of him or his personality or reflect him in some way. But what that at least means is that they can quite easily be transplanted elsewhere. Also with Marvel, you've got the fact that everyone's knocking around New York City, so everyone kind of bumps into (laughs) one another anyway. Um, And with Batman's villains, I think it's that you generally... I think you get these characters who... um, And because Batman's villains have the cycle of... Villain turns up, villain does something, Batman defeats them, they go to Arkham Asylum, they break out of <laughs> Arkham Asylum, cycle begins again. Like of of all superheroes, Batman's villains have a specific end point where they will end up when he's beaten them in a way that a lot of other villains don't tend to. And for that reason, you get these villains in that kind of cycle. And so you can see that it's tempting for a writer elsewhere to go, um, oh, that character has been stuck in that constant loop with Batman, wouldn't it be interesting to break them out and do something else with <laughs> wouldn't them? Wouldn't it be interesting to have Superman them chuck them into the sun? <laughs> <laughs> and also it's just it's just that they, you know, they do tend to have quite strong concepts behind them, even if they're sometimes paper thin. Um, and they have the iconic nature because of Batman 66. I mean, you know, yeah. there, obviously there are a lot of notable Batman villains that have come along since then. Um, but I think Batman 66 did a lot to establish the type of villain and, you know, for Batman to have a rogues gallery of this recurring type of villain. I mean, again, most of the heroes don't have enough villains that Arkham Asylum could even exist. Mm. You know, Arkham Asylum couldn't exist in Metropolis. It's like these characters are themselves a symptom of what Gotham City is like. It it's all it's all there's there's a very rich stew to how Batman's villains it's, work. It's but it does mean that they can be kind of plucked out of it as well. It's interesting what you say there about Batman sixty six, because I do wonder whether the fact that when characters get the screen adaptations and become better known to wider audiences then comics are more saleable when they use those you know recognizable villains that someone who might not normally pick up a comic will pick up because they recognize that character and i think that now that we're in a period of all these obscure superheroes being adapted i mean did anyone who wasn't reading Marvel comics know who Loki was five, 10 years ago? Probably not. But then, you know, maybe in 20, 30 years time, people will say, Oh, Thor has quite a good rogues gallery because X, Y, and Z got adapted well on the big screen. Um, and that might be what ends up making them iconic because then when they've got that, good screen adaptation then the comics are able to tell more stories with them and are probably gonna just through probability happen across more good comic stories with them which then you know it's a nice little I mean, nice little cyclical it, loop it works I mean, both ways though because there are plenty of films that have like crossbones for example is a much bigger and more interesting threat in the 
comics hmm. than he is in the films. Like the films have essentially pissed him away. Um, or pre Dark Knight Rises, depending on what you thought of Dark Knight Rises, um, Bane. <laughs> yeah. You know, Bane, Bane was turned into a joke as a result of Batman and Robin, and they had to quietly leave him alone for a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, you you think about it is it is definitely demonstrably the case that when a character, whether hero or villain, uh, is popular in the films, the publishers of the comics go and put that character in more like you, comics. Especially that, that Spider-Man 2. I remember there were like six or seven Doctor <laughs> Octopus series. Like Spider-Man, yeah. Doctor Octopus, and, you know, Origin of Doctor Octopus. Like you could not move for Doctor Octopus comics. And, and look at what they've done with all the individual members of the Guardians of the Galaxy and stuff yeah. like that. Mm. Um, the reason why this happens is because, as you have said, the comics companies like to think that putting out comics based on these recognisable characters from the movies will sell the comics to people who wouldn't otherwise buy them. This is not what happens in practice. <laughs> it never happens. What actually happens is people who are already buying comics end up reading more stories about the characters who have appeared in the movies. That's all that happens. But the companies keep on doing it. And to be fair, I think you you know, you know do see sales spikes as a result of movies, but it's sales spikes to people who would already have been buying comics. They just happen to buy these particular comics because they liked the movie and they saw the characters. It's like, you know, I've bought every issue of every iteration of a Rocket and Groot comic since The Guardian's movie came out and i one those comics would not exist without the movie and two i would not have wanted to buy them without the movie as it is i've bought them i've enjoyed them it's great we're all happy however i strongly doubt that more than a handful of people who wouldn't otherwise have gone into a comic shop have gone oh they've done a comic about rocket and grew i liked them in the movie i'll go and read that comic that just doesn't happen <laughs> at all yeah. it's I, I just think it's interesting maybe how how the notoriety of certain characters develops. I'm, I'm mm. sure there is a symbiotic relationship, and I'm sure there will be bad depictions on film that will kind of dampen the enthusiasm for certain characters on the page, and vice oh, versa. Oh, and that there will be, happened. yeah, that will be great. You know, if I don't, I don't know. Maybe we'll get even more Harley Quinn comics. And then, you know, <laughs> we'll see difficult. in 10 years' time a different take on Harley Quinn. And there, there, there are some characters, though, that manage to kind of transcend that, really. And it's like, if Jared Leto's Joker turns out to be absolutely terrible, nobody is going to turn around and go, oh, well, the Joker's shit. It's like, you know, the, the Joker is at a point that the Joker can survive a bad interpretation in the way that Lex Luthor can survive the Jesse Eisenberg interpretation, <laughs> even though I quite like that interpretation, but most people didn't. Um, you know, it's like when, when certain mm. characters reach a certain point, it doesn't actually matter. Like, if Jared Leto's Joker is bad, people will not associate him with the Joker. They'll just ignore that interpretation and they'll carry on associating the Joker with Heath Ledger and Jack Nicholson and comics like The Killing Joke, you know. Hmm. I think it's I think it's more a case for me interesting at seeing what the tipping point is into saying this character has a good rogues gallery because probably I don't know, maybe it takes a movie doing something very different with a character that then <laughs> I mean, the comics decide to do something different with that character who maybe wasn't great if to I, begin with. If I was going to say what the tipping point is, it's what creators were working on the comics sort of in the initial maybe five years of their run back in the 60s. 
Well, you say that, but I mean, like, I think for both Spider-Man and Batman, they've had waves of good characters being created with them. With Spider-Man, obviously, you had that incredible burst of, like, you read the first 10 or 11 issues of Amazing Spider-Man and almost every single one introduces a villain who's still around. <laughs> uh, who are the, who's the fancy Dan Inox? What are they called? <laughs> the the enforcers. enforcers, that's it. They're probably the one yeah. missed from that, like, initial 20 issues or so. Yeah. Um, and similarly with Batman, you know, the Joker is that, okay, he's not in Detective Comics 27, but the Joker is right there in Batman number one, and a lot of the others appear in the 40s. But equally, you've you've got, with Batman, you've got Ra's al Ghul being created in the 70s, and you've got various characters being created by the likes of Grant and Brayfogle in the kind of late 80s. You've got Bane showing up in the 90s. Um, with Spider-Man, um, you've got people like Craven and Hobgoblin coming along later. It's like you get that yeah, initial wave, it's... but that initial wave seems to set a bar that the that later creators then feel that they have to live up to, and they can't get away with yeah, just creating. I mean, again, with the X-Men, like or the the Lee and Kirby stuff is still around, and then you had like uh, who was it who came after? Oh, it's gone blank, but like afterwards, they had a, a run of really bad sort of people like the locust who just never turned up again and then claremont came on in the 80s and introduced a bunch bunch more so yeah it goes back and forth but i think mm. i'm not i'm not sure there's a formula i think it's i think joe if you if you want to pin it down i think it's a difficult thing to pin down i certainly think it's something that's longer than, yeah. than we've i'm just got wondering whether um, in 20 years we'll be talking about certain characters having better rogues galleries than we think they have now purely because screen adaptations have found a more interesting twist on them than they had on I the page. I think, I think we'd point. have to have a lot more screen adaptations than we currently get. Like one Captain America film every three years isn't going to make Diamond back like yeah. embed in the public consciousness or whatever. So it's kind of... And even if it does... No, like, one, it could yeah, be a bad great version. performance well, yeah. of that character would. Yeah, but so I, I think... think I, I think now we're at a point where the public the wider public are always going to know who Loki are and they're probably always going to know who Harley Quinn is from this point going forward yeah, because you've just had but at the same time they're always going to know who Malekith is and like Malekith yeah, no, Malekith no, was never good and will never be no. good now like no one's going to bother with Malekith again Not anyway I feel we've gone slightly <laughs> off task here <laughs> so I think I'll, we'll probably bring this chat to a close by in relation to those screen adaptations, talking about Michael Keaton to bring this to a close, because I just think it, it seems unfortunate. Because the last chance we get to talk that, about him in these. Yeah, the, well, the Keaton was playing this role in an era where the movies were more interested in the villains than they were in the heroes, and I think that that was a trend that continued for quite a while of superhero cinema really being dominated by the villain or the strength of the film being defined by how good the villains were. Um, and I think it was really the Marvel cinematic universe that reversed that trend and spent more time getting their heroes right and underserving the villains. Um, and so Keaton got to play a comic book hero during the let's focus on the villain phase and is now playing a villain <laughs> in the let's focus on the hero phase because 
if I had to predict, I don't think Vulture's going to get that much attention in Spider-Man Homecoming, <laughs> given how much they're implying that it's leaning on the high school life side of things. Yeah. And it's just a shame for that guy. I mean, I'd probably make Birdman if that was the the hand that I was dealt by superhero <laughs> films. But he is great here, and we're not going to get to talk about him again on this podcast. So... I think it I think it really should be said that given how little these two films give him to do, he is I think he's the best Bruce Wayne comfortably. And you know, maybe with a better suit would have been the best Batman as well. And I'm I'm still not convinced that he's not the best. No, I I think I think it's going to be interesting to see what Justice League does. I think Affleck is very well placed to go on to become the best screen Batman. I just don't movie. think I will ever like um, him. I don't think I'll be warm towards I, him. I don't think I'll ever not Affleck. see Ben Affleck. Is the problem with that? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think... I mean, people will talk about Christian Bale and we'll talk about Christian Bale more when we get to, to Dark Knight. But, Bale. I mean... You know, yeah. I mean, you know, I think we already expressed reservations about him on 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 the Batman Begins podcast. Where is she? Um, <laughs> yeah, I I don't think there's anything that anyone does in the role since Keaton that that really tops him. And you know, I think it would be much clear if he was given the kind of material that Christian Bale gets. It would mm. be much more clear cut than it is. Um, because I mean, hell, if he was given some of the stuff, even like Batman Forever focuses more on Batman and Bruce Wayne than the two Tim Burton ones do, even while it's cramming in two villains and Robin. Like I feel like Val Kilmer actually gets given more to do than Michael Keaton does. Just imagine Michael Keaton in Batman Forever; he would elevate that film instantly. Mm. Um, yeah, I, just, I think he's t- he's not perfect, but. I think he's terrific, and I do. I really enjoy almost as even though, as we said on the the last one, you know, he's not necessarily a Bruce Wayne that's a recognizable Bruce Wayne from the comics. Although I think in this film he is more. I like the stuff with him facing off with Max as Bruce Wayne, and he's not he's not being Batman there. He's not like using his Batman ness. He's going head to head with him as Bruce Wayne, the businessman that he's supposed to be. Mm. Um, you know, I, th- I think there's the, the, for what's quite a brief scene, I think he's really good there. Yeah, um, and I think that that is a recognisable Bruce Wayne. But in general, I think all the stuff where he's Bruce Wayne, I think he's really terrific. And I don't really think he does anything wrong in the costume. It's just that he's never really given anything great to do in the costume. He like almost every time that Batman is in the costume in both films, he's just there. You know, yeah, he's I mean, just he's just a presence. Visual uh, Tim Burton's direction, but fight choreography is not his fault. Tim Burton is not an action director. No. No. Um but yeah, I think I think Keaton as Bruce Wayne is an enjoyable character that I really enjoy watching and a really enjoyable performance. So I mean yeah. I don't expect you guys to agree, but actually from stepping back and looking at this movie, I think these are my favourite screen versions of all of Batman. Penguin and Catwoman and Max Shrek, given that there isn't another one. <laughs> <laughs> James, what would you would you agree with any of that? Or no, yeah, I don't. I don't think any of these characters have been tops uh, since 
So the, I mean, I think we had an argument last time about how definitive Keaton was. Uh, I mean, like I, I still I sorry. enjoy him. Like I, d- I don't think he's the Bruce Wayne, but he's certainly a good version of Bruce Wayne. I think the thing is, I don't think he's definitive. And again, I can't even remember. I may be saying word for word something I said <laughs> last time, but I don't think he's definitive in the sense that I can't imagine someone else doing it. Like that that's what definitive would mean would would be, you know, like he defines Bruce Wayne so well that that it would be difficult for someone else to do it. He doesn't do that, but nobody else has either. So, you know, he can be the best without being definitive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think I think we all agree there, and I think it comes back to what I was saying about this film. In that, I think moment to moment, it it could even be my favorite Batman movie in terms of I love that moment and I love that moment. And I love that. It's just not a complete film. Um, it doesn't all coalesce, and in terms of actual story, there is absolutely nothing there. I mean, we talked about Spider Man Two a couple of episodes back. And that is a film that when the villain plot comes together at the end, you don't really care. But at least it kind of tracks throughout the film and it makes sense. Um, And obviously it has so much other great stuff going around on around it. And that is a film that we all agreed was the best Spider-Man film. And considering how much good stuff there is in this film, it's surprising that you can't with any confidence say that it is the best Batman movie. No, but I mean, well, the main reason I wouldn't say with any confidence that it's the best Batman movie is because The Dark Knight is so <laughs> far and away demonstrably well, the best Batman then movie. Then that you couldn't even say with any confidence that it's the best Burton Batman movie. No, I mean, I, I, I think this and 89 level peg fairly evenly it's just that they really differ in terms of what their strengths and weaknesses yeah. are i think in, in some senses they have the same strengths and weaknesses but i, I but i think it is just yeah they you know there's some really great moment to moment stuff in this and there's there's stuff particularly in the early part where i just look at it and think this looks amazing and this has a really strong sense of itself mm. um i actually think most of where it tends to fall apart is when people start talking to each other. (laughs) I would just as well look to Tim Burton in this kind of little run that he had at this part of his career. Um, And I don't know, it's maybe five, six films in a row that, you know, you would kind of put up, you can kind of look at certain directors and say like, Oh, look at that iconic run. Um, And Burton had, uh, he had Beetlejuice, Batman, Edward Scissorhands, Batman Returns, Edward. I mean, wow. That's a, <laughs> that's pre- a, that's a pretty, pretty strong good. six years there. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, and even if you want to go further, he's got Pee-wee's Big Adventure beforehand <laughs> and Mars Attacks, which Mars I like Attack afterwards, afterwards, and Sleepy yeah. Hollow. It's just when you get to Planet of the Apes that things are yeah. unequivocally... Basically, out. Tim Tim Burton, Tim Burton in the twentieth century, great. Tim Burton in the twenty first <laughs> century, not great. Yeah, he's got a good one here or there, but not enough yeah. of them. Okay, well, good Batman Returns chat, guys. Um, what comics are you going to recommend to me? Because my plan is to obviously, I am currently in Hawaii. If you're listening to this, so I can't put a 
mini-sode out next week. But what my plan is, is after we've listened, after we've had the two pre-recorded podcasts, I'll then come back with a, wait for it, a mega-sode <laughs> in which I will talk about all of the comics recommendations from these episodes while I've been away. So this, what you're about to say, is probably what I'll be reading on a Hawaiian beach. <laughs> uh, I'll go first, shall I? Yeah, yeah. go on. Okay, like I, as I was saying, I haven't really read many sort of many Batman comics. Full stop. To be honest, like I'm, I've never really been able to get into them. Just the odd arc here and there. So, what I figured with this was, I would recommend you something that had Batman in and had Selina Kyle and had the Penguin in, and kind of showcase the the Rose Gallery we were talking about. So the book I'm recommending you is The Long Halloween by Tim Sale and Jeff Loeb, which I don't think you've read. Is that right? No, I haven't, but I've heard of it. Okay, so it's kind of, it's quite a long one, but I figure you've got a couple of weeks to read it. So, you know, it's worth, (laughs) it's worth it. I think it's maybe 12 or 13 issues, Seb. Can you remind me? Yeah, 12 12 issues. Um, And yeah, like it's, it's basically one central mystery that just sort of bounces you around the whole Batman Rose Gallery set just after year one, possibly. Yeah, um it's it's designed as pretty much a direct sequel yeah, to okay. year one, even oh, though it was great. published about fifteen yeah. years after. And it. I, yeah. I, you know, I don't have a huge amount of Batman comics to compare it to, but I enjoyed it. So yeah, I think Excellent. I think that as well as giving you a good look into sort of the comics versions of Catwoman and Penguin, it will give you give you a chance to get acquainted with all of Batman's best villains as well. Um the only problem with that is i actually did consider recommending long halloween for the same reasons that you're (laughs) recommending it the reason i didn't was because long halloween is what we're supposed to recommend for the dark nights (laughs) but we can do dark victory instead (laughs) the thing about the the reason the reason reason for this is joe is that um uh like two-face is pretty much the the heaviest um feature of yeah. long halloween but that like loads of villains are in it but it's it's um it's written by jeff loeb um who we've talked about on here before obviously because of his involvement with marvel's tv stuff mm-hmm. and i think we generally talk about jeff loeb in less than glowing terms for his comics as because, far as i'm aware like, he was a promising writer who kind of well, what happened maybe was... the same as what james was saying basically 20, everything he's done at marvel <laughs> has been 21st absolute... century jeff loeb yeah. Yeah. Is that the issue? Well, like he he had some massive hits and then I think possibly hit, once his name got to the point of being able to sell comics the editors eased off maybe. Like that's a thing that happens yeah. in comics is once you become famous people stop interfering with your work and then it's revealed that you're not actually as good as you are if you're collaborating with someone. Like that's, mm. you know, that's pure theory. Like the other thing is he just lost interest in doing the kind of work he was doing and went for things like his Hulk run, which is intentionally dumb and a painfully bad read because of it. He, he has specifically said in interviews, he's talked about enjoying writing stuff that is intentionally stupid, Um, which he's not very good at. I mean, like stuff can be intentionally stupid and good, but his stuff is not. Uh, But long Halloween is like most people would rank that in the, I mean, um, especially his, his work with Tim Sale, like, for sure, yes. any time Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale do something, with the possible exception of Captain America White, which I haven't read. Which is kind of yeah, remote, but yeah. any time those two are on a project, it, it turns out good. Like, they did a bunch of Marvel books, like, that I'm sure will recommend to you because they're great. 
and yeah. he did yeah he did this uh he did long halloween and dark victory and the catwoman book that went was that tim sale as well um uh when in rome i think that was yeah, yeah so like all was, of those no was that one uh darwin cook no maybe it was yeah like any uh, anytime those two are together it's probably worth reading so and this is yeah. this is generally considered like the the lurb and sale book yeah well i'll look forward to that but seb i imagine you're coming from a completely different perspective from james in that you've probably read all of the batman books so you'll have a lot more to choose from <laughs> Well, yeah, I'm actually recommending you something that I haven't read, but that I'm oh. also going to finally go away and read because I know that I should have done. <laughs> um, so um, as as I think we discussed, like stuff with the Penguin in was kind of slim pickings. So there wasn't really much that I could pick out in terms of great Penguin stories from the comics. So I thought I'd look at Catwoman stuff. Now, obviously, Catwoman has had her own comics um, pretty much ever since I think she first got a mini series in the late 80s and then that span into a first volume of an ongoing series that ran for um, about 10 years I think maybe slightly under and I've I've read issues of it that have tended to cross in and out of um, crossovers with the Batman titles at the time but then in 2001 um, that series was taken over by Ed Brubaker who I'm sure you're already familiar with from yeah. this podcast and stuff we recommended to you um and an artist called darwin cook who was a fine artist who very sadly passed away uh, a couple of months ago um and they took over the run but basically brubaker said he would only take it over if he could change her costume and change the tone of the book and move away from the kind of cheesecakey style that it had been in um right. in, in recent years and they, it actually ended up, rather than just continuing the ongoing series, they relaunched it with a new number one and just did it as a completely fresh take on the character. And this interpretation of Catwoman like, has completely overwritten and subsumed like everything else that goes before. Like This is... This is the now the definitive Catwoman, and this this is the way that Catwoman is presented in in this run. I think everyone looks at now as this is what the character should always be like and should always have been like in terms of how it mixes her kind of background as a thief and her moral ambiguity and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and like the the Anne Hathaway version, I think owes a lot oh, yeah, to, sure. to these comics as well. Um, so it would the first volume is collected in a trade that's actually I think it's I think it's got like the first nine issues in it's called Trail of the Catwoman so it's a good job you've got a few weeks for all of this because James <laughs> has given you twelve issues and I've given you nine um, but as I say I mean I can't vouch for its quality because I haven't read it but it's I'm pretty sure it's won or been nominated for like Eisner Awards and stuff. It was it was huge in terms of redefining the character. It's Ed Brubaker and Darwin Cook, like one of the best writers and one of the best artists in modern comics. So um I'm sure it's really good. And I will go away and read it and report back on a future podcast, maybe or on Twitter, what I thought of it as well. But oh, yeah. excellent. So a bit of Batman, a bit of Catwoman. Um and that's that's a lot to look forward to. I'll probably, by the time everyone's listening to this, have read most of it, hopefully. <clears throat> and I think just before I move this on to our next section, um, if you want to know when we're recording this episode of the podcast, we're actually recording it on the 50th anniversary of the release of Batman 66 in cinemas. Yeah, I noticed is, uh... that. I realised we should have done that <laughs> instead. <laughs> 
so you can tell how far ahead we planned. <laughs> if we if we'd have known, maybe we would have done the sixty six episode. But I guess we'd have just been recording on that date and not releasing it, so you wouldn't have cared anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but we'll move on now to our final section, which is the pitch. And guys, it's still disappointing to me that after these two films, Tim Burton walks away. I mean, we got Edward out of it, so it's not the worst. But the two Batman films that followed, not the best. So what I want you to do is pitch me a third Tim Burton Batman movie and what you would have liked to have seen him do with Batman. Now, I don't know how you will have taken this. You might have taken this as a a film directly following on from Batman Returns, um, a version of Batman Forever, or maybe Tim Burton coming back to the franchise in 2016 to do a follow-up. So I'll leave it to you. Pitch me a third Tim Burton Batman movie. And Seb, I'll come to you first. Um, yeah, I, I went for the time travel option. I, I went for going back to uh, the 90s because, yeah. as we've discussed, 20th century Tim Burton rather than 21st century <laughs> Tim Burton. Um, Good choice. I, my thought was to take Michael Keaton's Batman and combine him with the other great lost Tim Burton project of the 1990s, which was, of course, Superman Lives. Mm. Um, so I would like to see Michael Keaton and Nicolas Cage in Tim Burton's Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. Uh, <laughs> you've probably won. You've probably won. You've, you've really hit my buttons there. Nick Cage, Michael Keaton... A dawning of justice. The only, the only downside, but I think we could get. Away, actually, no, I think we can get away with it. Um, in Superman Lives, uh, we know that Kevin Spacey was going to be Lex Luthor, but obviously we did get to see that eventually. Mm. Um, but Christopher Walken was going to be Brainiac, but obviously he's already been in the franchise. But how about if Brainiac was somehow a revived Max Shrek? Like yeah. the ho- Brainiac uses Max Shrek's body or some kind of essence as his host. Like so you more. get to bring back Max Shrek, you get to bring back Christopher Walken, but he's Brainiac. So. Yeah, just to drive that one home a little further. James, do you want to answer, or should we just skip it? <laughs> I like that the process is transparent, at least. <laughs> I mean, originally I was thinking, like, just do a third film with, uh, I want to say Captain Cold, Mr. Freeze, but because, like, <laughs> Tim Burton, Snow, like, that's all you need, really, to get a good-looking film, at least. But having heard yeah. Seb's pitch, I'm revising mine to Tim Burton comes to do a modern Batman movie with Michael Keaton. And what happens is he, through the, like, uh, you know, fear gas of the scarecrow, Michael Keaton is sent on a sort of, what's the word? Odyssey. Odyssey through, as Batman through all of Tim Burton's previous films. <laughs> and basically what happens is you get Michael Keaton's Batman fighting Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands and a bunch of monkeys. And basically it'll be a way for Tim Burton to revisit his catalogue and comment on how he's changed as a filmmaker, how he thinks the work has fared. And I think that would give it would give Michael Keaton something interesting to do because, like, obviously he's no stranger to sort of meta commentary on his career. Um, it would give Tim Burton a chance to be good again, 
And most importantly, it would give us Batman fighting gorillas, which is really all any comics reader wants to see. You see, you want to see Batman fighting Damon Albarn. <laughs> From what you've just said there, it in my head I was thinking of the Batman sixty six comics, and I was wondering, James, I think you've come across a great comics idea. <laughs> Someone does a like Batman eighty nine comic series but it's about that batman coming just traveling through the tim burton verse <laughs> rather than staying in gotham mm-hmm. so he leaves gotham and there's not a metropolis there but there is like the little town from edward scissorhands or he can happen across beetlejuice's mansion or whatever oh batman fighting beetlejuice double keaton <laughs> so <laughs> um I actually did like both of those pictures a lot. James, I've commissioned you for a comic series. Tim Burton will creatively consult. Um, Seb's is getting the big screen treatment, which time traveling back to 1994 and making that film. I mean, he had Nick Cage, man. <laughs> I gave it all I had. Hard to beat. That's all I can Wait, say. Has Nick Cage been any Tim Burton movies? Mm, uh, not that I can think of. I'm not sure if he has. No. Uh, it's not in Mars Attacks. Needs to happen. No. Needs to happen, you guys. I'm sure someone will point out that he has. But maybe it can happen in I the mean, future. if you don't want to see Batman okay. fighting apes, I don't know what to tell you. I do. But I want someone to draw it. <sighs> I don't want anyone to film it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, James, you've got a comic book series, and Seb, you won the pitch. <laughs> We're all, winners, really. We're all winners. Sorry, James. <laughs> Can't win more than one. I'm being ridiculous. I don't want to break the format. Okay. Um, but that is it for this week's show. Um, if you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice, and support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe. You can find more episodes of the show at cinematicmultiverse.com. You can get in touch via Facebook, on Twitter at CU underscore podcast, or send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Contessa Valentina de Allegro Fontaine. Quite a mouthful when you try and wrap your tongue around it. Don't let the blue blood fool you, Pierce. Val's an old hand at the sexpionage game, aren't you? Cinematic Universe returns with Nick Fury, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.